when I would travel to Little Rock for this story, I typically stayed with my friends, Kevin and Angie Hefner. Kevin is a doctor, and Angie does a whole host of things, one of which is fostering dogs. I've enjoyed Hefner hospitality for years, but it wasn't until recently that I discovered an interesting fact about Angie's father. He was a deputy U.S. Marshal. Maybe you've seen a famous Norman Rockwell illustration called The Problem We All Live With. It ran in Look Magazine in 1964. It depicts a little black girl being escorted into school by deputy U.S. Marshals. The image commemorates the 1960 school integration effort in New Orleans. Angie's father, Herschel Garner, was one of the marshals on that assignment. He was also sent in 1962 to protect James Meredith, the first black student to enroll at the University of Mississippi. I later had another conversation with Billy Heflin. Billy and her husband Mark are members of Second Baptist, friends of the Hefners. Come to find out that Billy's great uncle was Reverend Paul Turner. In 1956, Turner was the white pastor of First Baptist Church in Clinton, Tennessee. Turner was beaten by segregationists after escorting a group of African-American students into Clinton High School. My point is, I don't think these connections are coincidental. I think the right side of history probably has a through line. From Good Faith Media, this is the six-part narrative podcast, A Second Language. Episode 4, The Nerve to Say. While Reverend Dale Cowling was acting from the pulpit, church member Brooks Hayes was acting in his own way. Keep in mind that Hayes, during the Little Rock Crisis, was both a sitting U.S. congressman as well as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He had just been elected to that latter office, and the hate mail was already arriving. Even though Hayes had signed the Southern Manifesto, he was perceived by many as soft on the race issue. Here's Ray Higgins former pastor of Second Baptist, who also holds a Ph.D. in Christian ethics. You know, looking back on their leadership, it, it looks kind of soft, um, Brooks Hayes's leadership. But really, it was about as aggressive as you could be and be in the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Historical Library and Archives in Nashville, Tennessee, holds Brooks Hayes's materials related to his SBC presidency. One of the many boxes of his papers contains a folder simply labeled Crackpot File. One might open it with glee. One letter to Hayes, from a Mr. Lashbrook in Memphis, bemoaned the fact that Hayes was even elected president in the first place. Lashbrook noted that Hayes was elected while the convention was in Chicago, where, quote, all the radical left-wing liberal non-Southern Baptists felt at home. Lashbrook referenced all sorts of historical minutiae and really got his money's worth on that stamp. I am surprised at your stupidity, he said. I will just invite you to read the Bible. I say God Almighty was the original segregationist. Hayes acted as a sort of mediator for Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus and President Dwight Eisenhower. The congressman helped manage telegrams and trips, eventually brokering a meeting between the governor and the president. 
there were interminable backs and forths, all leading to the eventual presence of the Little Rock Nine in Central High School, despite waves of ugly, violent, now famous demonstrations at the school by white segregationists. Hayes detailed all of this in his 1959 book, A Southern Moderate Speaks. Though Hayes is typically and understandably associated with this political maneuvering during the Little Rock crisis, that wasn't the only thing on his plate. A few months later, in April 1958, he was on Scandinavian Airlines from New York to Copenhagen to Moscow. It was a religious trip in his capacity as SBC president to encourage Russian Christians and build goodwill. It was the middle of the Cold War and the space race. The Soviets had launched their Sputnik satellite, and now Hayes was going into what many Americans considered the belly of the beast. It's important to understand this about Brooks Hayes. He saw challenges as interrelated, and a spirit of goodwill, in his view, could improve relationships, be they in Little Rock or Leningrad. He spoke incisively, and with words for today, about patriotism to Southern Baptists when they gathered for their convention in Houston in May 1958, shortly after Hayes' return from Moscow. The Christian and the patriot may dwell in the same heart, but that is true only if the patriot acknowledges the universality of faith and love and repels the chauvinist and narrow nationalism. In his first of several appearances at that year's convention, Hayes also teased his Friday evening address. On Friday evening, I shall have something to say about my trip to Moscow. The promotion of peace presents a great challenge to Southern Baptists, and we should officially and formally accept it. Consequently, I recommend that the convention authorize the appointment of a committee to report within a year on what Southern Baptists can do to promote peace and goodwill in the world. Right after Brooks Hayes finished speaking, I found this from his Second Baptist pastor. The chair recognizes Brother Dale Cowling from Arkansas. Brother Cowling. In keeping with the request made by our president in his message, I read the following resolution, which I should like to refer to the resolution committee. Whereas the gospel of Christ enjoins us to seek peace and goodwill among all people, and whereas the threat of war still creates fears and international tensions, and whereas Southern Baptists are eager to meet our responsibility to promote peace through Christian love and the application of Christian principles to human affairs, therefore be it resolved that a committee of nine members be appointed by the President to report to the 1959 Convention on ways and means by which Southern Baptists can contribute to the cause of world peace. Friday came and Hayes gave the anticipated talk, Crisis Among the Nations, in which he talked about his visit to Moscow and praised the United Nations. Remember how this perspective would rub against that of Cary Daniel and many still today. I had the honor of being your delegate to the United Nations in 1955. I sat in the back row of that great assembly hall. Many of you have seen it. I heard the representatives of the new nations come to this forum dedicated to freedom and democracy and peace. For some, like Harry Daniel or the Mr. Lashbrook in Memphis, the United Nations might as well have been the Tower of Babel. There it all was, 
Integration, Nimrod, Negroes, the NAACP. God made races of people different, wrote Mr. Lashbrook, and he did not mean for us to come along and change the whole scheme of creation. Every Negro church is a forum for the NAACP, typed Lashbrook to Hayes, and it is all communist-inspired. Hayes saw the interconnectedness of it all. And so the domestic problems that plague us are not unlike the international conflicts that are frightening us. The supreme problem of this century is the problem of, in, of adjusting group relations, of bringing people into harmony with each other so that peace in its Christian sense is achieved. Can it be an age of compassion? Will the historians of the future say of this century it was one in which mercy and kindness was not found? Shall these aspirations of the colored peoples of the world find adequate as well as intelligent response? That is the thing for Christians to ponder. This podcast, A Second Language. We'll be right back after this word from Christians Against Christian Nationalism. I'm Shane Claiborne, founder of The Simple Way in Philadelphia and director of Red Letter Christians, and I'm a supporter of the Christians Against Christian Nationalism campaign. Wondering what a concrete example of Christian nationalism really looks like? Here's one. Putting the American flag in your sanctuary. Yeah, this might be a softer form of Christian nationalism, but it's not unimportant. To be a part of the body of Christ is to transcend nationality. So no single national flag belongs at or near a Christian altar. For more on this campaign, visit ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org. Welcome back to A Second Language from Good Faith Media. Little Rock's problems were entrenched, and in many ways, September 1957 was just the beginning of a new round of problems. Here's Rebecca Cowling again, in the car with Kevin and me. We're cruising down East 7th Street in downtown Little Rock. Her name was Mrs. Adolphine Terry. Look her up. Yeah, Terry Middle School. Yes. She was a lovely, lovely, lovely woman. Adolphine Terry died in 1976, aged 94. We're approaching her famous family home, a large Greek revival structure, which had actually been built in 1840 by a certain Albert Pike. Remember, he was the Confederate Army Brigadier General for whom the lavish 1920s hotel, standing next to Second Baptist, was named. When I was little, I still can't believe Daddy let me do this. Just go straight. I wandered all these streets. Just, I guess I was a restless child. So, I used to come down here, and I would just let myself in the gate and go up to the door and knock, and Miss Terry would come to the door. And Miss Terry would make tea and cookies and we would 
have afternoon tea. Isn't that something? Adolphine Terry. Her father had been an enslaver and a Confederate Army officer. She had gone to Vassar, and by the late 1950s was elderly, wealthy, and a racial moderate. And she wasn't just having tea with the daughter of Dale Cowling. She was also hosting a group of women that came to be known as the Women's Emergency Committee. She called somebody and said, the women are going to have to take this integration thing over. You all can't handle it. We're going to handle it. Now, do you know what a big deal that was in 1957? No woman had the nerve to say anything like that. Mm -hmm. I grew up with women who made a difference. I mean, a big difference. In another sign of just how serious segregationists were, Governor Faubus of Arkansas closed Little Rock's four high schools at the beginning of the 1958 school year. That's right, the state closed them rather than see them integrated. The Women's Emergency Committee was formed to reopen them. Vivian Lennon Brewer wrote an incredible blow-by-blow account of the committee's years-long work. It's called The Embattled Ladies of Little Rock. Brewer founded the Women's Emergency Committee, along with Adolphine Terry and Velma Powell. Records indicate that less than 10% of the women on the committee were Baptist, even though about half of the city's white congregants were Baptist. Retha Cheatham and Lynn Heflin were two of the women on the committee from Second Baptist. Vivian Brewer's book also notes Reverend Cowling's ready assistance, including his appearance at the committee's request on a special television program arguing for the importance of public education. Cowling was wholeheartedly against the move to close the schools, though he spoke carefully. Here's how he phrased it in the church newsletter. It is my judgment that to close the public schools in order to keep them segregated is at best only a delay in the final solution. Cowling wanted the schools open, even though it means integration, he said. I recognize the fact that to do so will bring us some difficult social problems, but these can and will yield to a spirit of love and prayer. You might not be surprised to learn that during the school closure, the state tried to divert money for public education to private schools, or that public school teachers were caught in the crossfire of the state flexing its muscle. I should note that only white women made up the Women's Emergency Committee after disagreements over whether to include African-American women. Similarly, the committee did not pitch itself as pro-integration, only pro-education. While committee members and supporters held a variety of perspectives on integration, they generally viewed pro-integration messaging as actually hurtful to the cause in Little Rock of getting and keeping schools open, hence a repeated and consistent focus not on integration, but on the importance of public education. But even this simple messaging carried constant intimidation. The embattled ladies received all manner of threats for their work. One threat in particular stood out to me. You and all others who think as you do should be tied by the feet to a car and dragged the length of Ninth Street as did happen once before. The reference, of course, was to the lynching of John Carter in 1927. The second largest private school that opened for whites in Little Rock was Baptist. Baptist High School. That's Professor Sandra Gordy. 
It's a clip from the 2007 documentary film The Lost Year by Sandra Hubbard. The film chronicles what happened when Little Rock closed its public high schools, leaving nearly 4,000 students, black and white, without school. Baptist High School became one option. In October 1958, Dale Cowling reported that Second Baptist had 78 high schoolers and that about half had already secured a school option elsewhere. So the church was planning to open its own interim prep school for the church's high schoolers. Meanwhile, Washita Baptist College, now University, in Arkadelphia, was also thinking of creating a high school in Little Rock, given the demand. When asked if the school would be for whites only, Washita President Ralph Phelps said, I assume so. He also said, it seems highly improbable, if not totally impossible, that a school could be conducted in Little Rock now on any other lines. When Washita trustees approved such a school on October 17th, they said it would be for white students only and temporary. This school is not to be interpreted as a political involvement of Washita, they said. The concern is not integration or segregation as such, but the education of boys and girls who have become the victims of a struggle beyond their control. The efforts Second Baptist had already put into creating its own school became the basis for the larger Washita-supported Baptist High School in Little Rock. Historian Sandra Gordy again from the film. Uh, they used the facilities of the Second Baptist Church. They used the YWCA for their PE classes. They used a business school downtown for their commercial classes. And they had up between 300 and 400 students. Gordy, who died in 2022, was an expert on this lost year of school. All but 7% of white students found some place to go to school. It might not have been their choice. It might not have been the education that they would have received at Central High or Hall High, but they went somewhere to school, all but 7%, 50% of black students found no schooling because no private education for blacks emerged in Little Rock. So the fall of 1958, a year after the initial crisis, was its own crucible. In the Southern Baptist Archives, I found an undated piece of handwritten mail to Brooks Hayes, but likely written in 1958. The letter writer says that Hayes had previously said he was not for integration. Quote, Yet Cowling, the pastor of the Second Baptist Church, told the people Sunday night that you was for mixing the white with the Negroes. Do you want your grandchildren to marry Negroes, or is it just votes you want? End quote. It was signed from a group of Christians. Indeed, Hayes was up for re-election to Congress in November 1958. Historian John Kirk. When his next election came around, there was always somebody who could be out-segregationist you, and this was a local optometrist, Dale Alford, and um, he won uh, in a writing election against Brooks Hayes, who was an incumbent who'd been spent many years in the office. And it's one of the rare instances, maybe one or two or a handful, in U.S. congressional history where an incumbent was beat by a writing candidate. Hayes's refusal to outright support segregation, coupled with his efforts at mediating the conflict in Little Rock, cost him his congressional seat. 
he had regretted signing the Southern Manifesto in 1956, as he said later. This so-called uh, manifesto was a mistake. I wish I had not signed it, and uh, it has embarrassed me ever since. I've never said anything that was more revealing, I think, of my inmost feelings, my, my deliberate meditations on this thing, than to put it like this. If my defeat in 1958, if my defeat in the Little Rock crisis where I was doing to my own hurt, what I knew to be right and just, if that atones for the mistake I made, then I'm one of the happiest men that was ever defeated. Cross. And I think that's all I need to say. Dale Cowling, later in life, told of going to see Brooks Hayes after this defeat. Brooks Hayes was my dear friend, a wonderful man. The morning after he lost the election because of his stand, during the integration crisis. I went to his office to comfort him. I knew he would be devastated. To my amazement, he was not devastated. He sat behind his desk and ministered to me. He opened his Bible to First Peter. He read a passage which said, uh, if you suffer for righteousness sake, blessed are you. And he said, preacher, it's gonna all work out. God is still on his throne, and I'm still alive, and it's gonna work out. What did and didn't work out in episode five of A Second Language from Good Faith Media. You've been listening to A Second Language, written, produced, and narrated by me, Cliff Vaughn, of Good Faith Media. The executive producer is Mitch Randall. We hope you'll like, rate, and share the podcast. We are a nonprofit, and that really helps us out. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. Thanks to our interviewees, Kwame Abdul-Bay, Lanny Allenbaugh, Rebecca Cowling, Preston Clegg, Chris Ellis, Wendell Griffin, Stephanie Harp, Eric Higgins, Ray Higgins, John Kirk, Gene Levy, Jim and Gail Malik, Jenna Sullivan, and Sarah Tarek. Special thanks to my colleague, Starlet Thomas, who hosts the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media, and to Callie Chisholm for the artwork. And huge thanks to Kevin and Angie Hefner. Thanks to Lisa Spear and Taylor Lawson at the Washita Baptist University Archives, Taffy Hall at the Southern Baptist Historical Library and Archives, Carolyn Wilson in the Special Collections Research Center at the William and Mary Libraries, and Cassidy Long in Special Collections at the University of Arkansas. Other material comes from the archives at NASA, the Library of Congress, and the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. Thanks to Jim Pfeiffer and Sandra Hubbard, as well as Billy and Mark Heflin. Thanks to Patrick Fleming and Debbie Huff, Marquis Hunt, Joe and Charlotte Jeffers, Connie New, David Rice, and everyone at the Bramble Market. Thanks also to the Community Bakery in downtown Little Rock. Our music comes from Pond 5. If you are interested in learning more history about Little Rock and Arkansas, visit the fabulous Encyclopedia of Arkansas.net, a project of the Central Arkansas Library System. Our podcast show notes will list other helpful resources. Check out our other podcasts from Good Faith Media, including our first narrative podcast, 
Brother Molly, about the life and work of theologian Molly T. Marshall. A Second Language, released in August 2023 from Good Faith Media. We thank you for listening.